Hello, everyone, and welcome to the eighth episode of Apple Finch Pudding, your gateway into the world of science. Today's co-host is Olga Botanska, a passionate bee lover and creator of the Apiculture Studio, a project that focuses on the different aspects of bee and bee products. Our scientist for today is Dave Colson, a professor of biology at the University of Sussex and author of numerous books like Silent Earth, The Garden Jungle, and A Sting in a Tail. Welcome, Olga and Dave. Dave, you focus a lot on science communication. You have a successful YouTube channel. And as mentioned in my introduction, you are the author of numerous books. Where does this drive to communicate your work come from? And also, do you have any tips for aspiring science communicators like myself? Oh, that's a good question. I guess it comes from my mission in life is to try and save the insects, which is incredibly pretentious and impossible because obviously there are millions of them and there's far more than I can do. But it was born out of frustration. You know, I used to be a conventional scientist who didn't really do any outreach. I just studied bees and their ecology and published it in academic journals. And I eventually realized that that in itself doesn't really help unless someone's taking it and communicating and translating and, and actually doing something in the real world. So I guess that's how I got involved in science kind of outreach and communication. And uh, I don't know if I have any profound words of advice, really. I have no training in it at all. I'd say just say, give it a go. You know, uh, obviously you guys are very much doing that right now. Yeah, I think scientists are sometimes a bit frightened of stepping outside their kind of comfort zone. But actually, you know, you know far more about it than other people do. And I think scientists almost have a duty to stand up and be counted, you know, because we spend our lives studying whatever it is we study and we understand it far better than politicians or anybody else does. And particularly when it's in a kind of an applied area like conservation and biodiversity, then, you know, I think we have to be prepared to, you know, put our head above the parapet and say what we think. Yeah, because a lot of the information in academia is actually kind of enclosed in that academic world, right? And it's very hard to get it out there and to have people understand what you're doing and see the relevance of it. Absolutely. I, lots of scientific journals are behind paywalls that most people don't have access to. Even some scientists can't get access. You know, it's a crazy system. And they tend to be written in a really hard to understand kind of scientific language. So that they're, they're not intended for communication other than to other scientists, um, which is a really limited audience. And I honestly think many scientific papers are only read by, you know, 10 people, 20 people, I mean, what, all that effort for very little benefit, really. So yeah, it's, I think it's really important. If you've done something that you think created useful knowledge that somebody should be using, then, you know, it's kind of your responsibility, I think, to try and make sure that that knowledge gets into their hands. That sounds like a great mission you have. And Olga, you created the Apiculture Studio. Why do you think bees and their products are so important? Where does this love for bees come from, actually? So in my case, I was the one that was frightened by all the flying objects. So it was not a love from the first sight, not at all. So I would never thought bees were uh, suddenly appear in my life and really, really change my life. Uh, so I remember how hugely surprised I was when I learned that honeybee, in fact, is not the only bee that exists. And there are like around 20,000 different species. And I thought like, okay, I have something to do. And from that time, I'm fascinated by the abundance of the bee world. And later on, I started to tell other people, like, they can dive in this world uh, of bees. They can forget about the worries, about the problems, because bees can be very, very, relaxing and spending time in the nature is also helping you a lot. And in fact, bees open doors for multiple other uh, branches of knowledge, passions or career paths. 
And mostly the whole save the bees was based on a threat. But I know that more important than showing the threats resulting from possible extinction of bees is sharing knowledge about them. Because if you are closer to them, you start, you know, some way liking them, loving them. Uh, you just tend to care much more about the, the close ones. So it was a simple idea to show like, Mm, that discovering the, the bee universe can be really a pleasure for us. Uh, so I do not talk about pollination and I do not uh, like try to threat uh, the participants uh, of my workshops, like take care of bees because if not, you will die, which of course make an impression at first, but then I think you are not really getting into the topic and uh, you are just not developing it so much. So that was idea to, to start Apiculture Studio. And yes, I I was the one that was against uh, having, you know, the swarm of buzzing insects just outside my window. But I'm really thankful to my father that he convinced me and my mom. My first official question is always the same. And I ask both of you for a science joke or an anecdote or a fun fact. So I'll start with you, Dave. Do you have something for us? Yeah, I, there's so many possible things. I thought I'd go for a, one about bumblebees. They're sort of my speciality. So I was taught at school that insects are cold-blooded, but actually some insects, including bumblebees, aren't. They generate their own heat from their flight muscles, and the fur is there to keep that heat in. And It means they can fly in really cold places because their body is warm, just like our body can be kept warm if we wear a fur coat. And that enables them to live in really cold places like the species that live in the Arctic Circle and really high in the Alps and so on. But it comes at a cost, which is that they have to constantly feed on sugary nectar. They need huge amounts of energy to fuel their flight muscles, which flap their wings 200 times a second and generate all that heat. And somebody once calculated, so a running man burns the calories in a chocolate bar in about an hour of running. But if you had a man-sized bumblebee, which would be pretty damn cool, um, sadly doesn't exist, but a man-sized bumblebee would burn the calories in a chocolate bar in about 30 seconds, which just illustrates, you know, this really high metabolism they have and explains why basically they can't survive without loads and loads of flowers. And, you know, if we want to look after them, we need to provide them with all the fuel to keep them warm and keep them flying. I'm so jealous now. Because <laughs> you want to burn up the chocolate, right? As soon as possible. <laughs> it's going to stay in my mind now. Like yeah, It's a shame we can't kind of just transform into a giant bee whenever we want to, to burn off a few calories, but sadly we can't. Well, I actually have a small question about that. So they get the heat from moving their muscles, from their wing muscles, but at night, don't they cool down too much then? Or? Yeah, they do, but they're not active at night. So basically, to be flying, a bumblebee's thorax, where the wings are attached, needs to be above 30 degrees centigrade, approximately. And they can maintain that as long as they've got lots of nectar. They can fly when the air temperature is zero degrees centigrade. So, you know, 30 degree difference between their body and the air around them. But that's because they're constantly producing heat and they're insulated to keep as much of it in as possible. But at night, they do let their body temperature drop down. So they can resist cold at night when they're not moving. Yeah, yeah. Dave, did you hear that in California, like bumblebees are now considered under some circumstances to be like treated as a fish? A fish? 
Yeah, as a fish, because they do not have spine. Uh, so it was like considered that bumblebee uh, in California is now treated as a fish, like to go under this California Endangered Species Act, uh, so they get protected. But if fish is cold-blooded, and now you said just bumblebees are warm-blooded insects, uh, I hope no one from California will hear it and they will just not uh, change their idea. That's a pretty brilliant, cool fact in itself. I had no idea. That's absolutely crazy, isn't it? I guess it shows that insects don't fit into any kind of legal framework of protection generally, because people historically never really cared much about insects. Olga, can I assume that was your fun fact or do you have something else for us? So my fact is about uh, Carolinus, who developed a system of uh, taxonomy of uh, all organisms, which we still use today. Um, and he's also an author of like multi-volume work classifying the world of plants, uh, animals, minerals. And of course, to complete uh, this, uh, this work, it took some years. And it was changing when the new discoveries uh, appeared. For example, at some point, the scientists realized that whales should not be classified as the same place as fish. But there is also a mistake about my buzzing friends, my lovely creatures like honeybee. Uh, so Linnaeus named honeybee as Apis mellifera, uh, which means the honey carrier, as it was believed that flowers produce honey, not bees. And after three years, he changed his mind and he made a justified correction and changed mellifera to mellifica, which means the honey producer. But the problem is that the first one already uh, had taken root. So now all scientists around the world are calling uh, honeybees as Apis mellifera, which is wrong. Um, but I think it's, it's showing just um, how, how science is developing and how funny it can be. That's a cool fact. I actually only have a silly joke, which will seem rather dull right now, but here goes. So a frog is a bit uncertain about his future and he's like, I've had enough. I'm going to call a psychic. I want to know what's happening. So he calls a psychic and a psychic, oh, it's going to be great. You're going to meet a girl and she's going to want to know everything about you. And the frog is like, oh, I'm really excited. I'm, I'm going to meet a girl. And oh yeah, this will be great. And where will I meet her? Will I meet her at the party or something? Oh no, no, not at the party. You will meet her at her biology class. <laughs> so it's a bit silly compared to your facts, but Science is cruel. <laughs> it can be. So now we're going to really dive in. Dave, so you've mentioned that your goal is to preserve insects. You also mentioned that you work on bumblebees. But in the general form, what is the field of bumblebees? What, what does that mean? I work on bumblebees in general. So bumblebees are one genus of bee. Uh, Bombus is about 250 species known in the world. They're all big, furry creatures. They're all social insects with a queen and a nest with workers, but much shorter lived nests than the honeybee. The bumblebee nest only usually lives for a few months in the spring and summer, and it's founded by the queen on her own, which is, again, completely different to the way honeybees work. I started studying their foraging behaviour years ago now, and I just find them incredibly cute and interesting. They're really smart. They've got bigger brains than honeybees. Sorry to, I don't want to get into a row about whose bees are best. Uh, you know, there's just swings and roundabouts, pros and cons. Honeybees are lovely, but I've always just loved bumblebees. And they're certainly able to do amazing things. There's a guy called Lars Chick uh, at one of the London universities. 
who's managed to teach bumblebees to play football, amongst other things. Not really, to be fair, but he's taught them to, to roll a ball into a hole to get a sugar reward. And he's, they can recognize faces and all sorts of human faces. They're pretty smart. To touch back on something Olga said earlier, we often find ourselves justifying what we do on the basis that bees are important, they pollinate, they have an economic value, and or more broadly that insects are important because they do all these, you know, they provide these ecosystem services. But the honest truth is that's not why I study them at all. I study them because I love them and think they're just fascinating little creatures. And I couldn't really care less whether they have economic value or not. I kind of think they deserve their place on our planet just for what they are, whatever they do for us. Dave, uh, did you receive this viral photo with bumblebee and with a corgi bum? <laughs> no, I didn't. That's how you make people fall in love with bees, in fact. Like, they talk about the bums um, and other stuff and not, like, really get into pollination. But later on, they want to do something for them to, like, bring them to the gardens. Um, I have a friend who is now planting all different kinds of flowers uh, on her balcony. And she's taking the photos of bumblebees and sending to me. <laughs> and I thought it's like the best uh, achievement I could have. Yeah, it sounds brilliant. I, I've a few times had similar experiences. And it's, it's amazing to know that somebody is busy growing flowers, photographing bees, down on their hands and knees, staring at them, watching them. And because you managed to inspire them somehow with something you said or did or whatever. And that, that's more satisfying than anything else, really. And is that the result also of your science communication, like your books and your YouTube channel? Or is it something that happened also because of your lectures? More often the books and outreach than lectures, I think. But a mixture. And, and it's, sometimes I don't really know. But I, it's really lovely when I you know, occasionally get an email from somebody who completely filled their garden with wildflowers. And they send me a picture of it and say that they'd read something I'd written or heard me say something or whatever. And that persuaded them, you know, got them interested. And they read one of my books or whatever. And, and now their hobby is, is looking out for insects. You know, how brilliant is that? Yeah, it's far, you know, far more satisfying than publishing another scientific paper. It was also interesting to me that you said that you don't really care about their economic value, uh, which is great because that's how I feel about science as well. But it's often hard to get grants or find a job when you don't have an economic application. How do you deal with that? Oh, of course, when it is appropriate or when the person I'm talking to or the funding agency I'm talking to are more likely to listen to that argument. But, you know, in my heart, that's not what I care about, really. It's nice to work on something that does have an economic value because then you can use that argument when you need to. You know, if I was working on, I don't know, you know, some more obscure insect group that doesn't directly do anything that we really, you know, I mean, butterflies, for example, they're beautiful, but we could probably live pretty well without any butterflies in the world. It would just be a much sadder place. So it's handy and it's been great that there's this sort of tidal wave of appreciation of the fact that bees are important in recent years, which has just grows and grows. And I think we've now reached a point where there's not many people in the world that don't appreciate that bees are important and we need them. They may not understand any of the details. They may think there's just one species of bee, but at least they've got the idea that bees do something good, which is a, it's a good start and more than most insects have going for them. I do worry that maybe that sort of wave will crash one day, but it doesn't show any signs at the moment. Yeah, I think you and Olga are doing some great work in keeping that wave going. So it has a future. Well, let's hope so. Yeah. So Dave, you explained some general ideas of bumblebee research. 
in that field, what do you do exactly? What is your research? Uh, so I used to be focused mainly on understanding how they choose which flowers they gather nectar and pollen from. But I became more and more interested in understanding why they were declining over time. Uh, that seemed like a more urgent area to tackle. So we've done a lot of research on trying to understand what sort of factors are impacting on them most and how we might change that, how we might put back more flowers into farmland, how we might manage urban areas better for bees. And I guess one particular kind of controversial area I've got involved in in recent years, is it relates to pesticides and what effect they have on bumblebees uh, and other bees and insects generally which wasn't something I, I was particularly interested in at all until I guess about 10 or 11 years ago, the neonicotinoid debate sprang up, which was about this group of chemicals, insecticides that were developed in the 1990s and quickly became quite controversial because we started out with French beekeepers claimed their, their honeybees were being killed by them when the local farmers used them on sunflower crops. And uh, anyway, there hadn't really been any research done on bumblebees relating to pesticides and their impacts on them. And so I was kind of curious to find out if bumblebees were affected the same way that honeybees were and started doing research and got embroiled in, in a, a much more controversial area than, than I'd previously been involved in, you know, studying how we can plant more flowers. You don't upset anybody. Everybody agrees. More flowers. That's lovely. But if you start saying these pesticides are harming the environment, then you upset the interests of, of industry and farmers and you end up on the receiving end of a lot of criticism. And I don't think I was ready for that. But anyway, I've got used to it. So that's so part of my research is still focused on understanding pesticide impacts on insects. As time has gone on through my career, it's become more clear that there is a crisis, um, you know, that, that insects and biodiversity in general are in rapid decline. And it seems to me that doing something about that is the most important thing I can do with my research time. So that's really where my focus is, I guess, these days. And do you link that back purely to those chemicals or also to climate change or other things? I, I've got a PhD student, Janet, at the moment, who's looking at the impacts of heat waves and climate change on bumblebees. And of course, the truth is all of these things interact, you know, that... Um, Bees aren't declining, bumblebees aren't declining due to one any one thing. It's a kind of perfect storm of, you know, there aren't many flowers in modern farmland. And when they do find a flower, it's likely to be contaminated with a pesticide. But then it may also be contaminated with a non-native disease that's come from Asia that's been accidentally brought in with honeybees, which we have problems with in wild bumblebees. And then they might be subject to a, a drought, a flood, a heat wave, uh, extreme weather conditions on top of all of this. So if the, if the bee is hungry and poisoned and diseased, and then it hits 42 degrees centigrade, then stick it all together and we shouldn't be surprised if it dies. And, you know, in the UK, just a week ago, exactly, we broke all temperature records, it exceeded 40 degrees centigrade for the first time. Bumblebees thrive in cold climates, you know, they're big and furry as an adaptation to living in places that are cold and wet. And um, they really don't like warm weather. So climate change, sadly, is really bad news. And there's, there's already clear evidence that the bumblebees are disappearing from the southern parts of their ranges in the northern hemisphere. So in Europe, the Mediterranean is, is the southern edge for most bumblebee species. And they're contracting, being driven out of southern Europe, basically, because it's simply too hot these days for them. And, you know, under the likely climate change projections of 
we're, I mean, I don't think there's any doubt that we're going to hit two degrees warming realistically and probably more. That's going to be pretty catastrophic, I'm afraid, which is actually terribly depressing because it rather undermines anything else we might do to conserve biodiversity. Because if the climate is wrong, then it doesn't matter how many flowers we grow or how much habitat we provide, um, they're not going to survive, sadly. That's indeed a bit of a, a sad message. <laughs> no, no, it fits the truth. I wanted to ask, like, uh, where to start? We want to convince people to do something. But I think that the problem is we don't know the needs of bumblebees or uh, solitary bees. Um, so that was my question to you. Like, what really bumblebees need? And how our lifestyle can be more friendly for bees? Like, what can we do as a mankind? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of things we can do. Generally speaking, providing more natural habitat, more native flowering plants is one of the best things we can do, particularly flower-rich grasslands that we used to have large areas of in Europe, but which sadly we've, we've lost many of. A lot of the bumblebees that have really declined in Europe are species that were very strongly associated with grassland flowers, particularly all the legumes, the fabaceae that thrive in low nutrient soil conditions, which used to be pretty common before fertilizers became widely available in Europe. But actually, I mean, I think more broadly, we need to set aside more land for nature. Uh, that's my take. You know, we're just not giving them any space. You know, that most of the surface of Europe now and increasingly the world is farmland or urban area. And we can make both of those more hospitable to bees. You know, you can put flower strips into the farmland. You can put more hedgerows into farmland. And at urban areas, we can grow lots of wildflowers in our gardens, uh, lots of bee-friendly flowers. We can persuade the council to not cut the parks so often, the road verges, the roundabouts, fill those all with wildflowers. All of that would help. But I think the ideal would be to also just set aside much bigger areas for nature generally, not just for bees. I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of E.O. Wilson and his half-earth idea. And sadly, he died a few months ago. But uh, most people think you're crazy when you suggest that we should set aside half the earth for nature. But actually, we could. Uh, we could easily feed everyone and set aside half the world if we really wanted to. And unfortunately, you know, nowhere near enough people are, are really at all interested in that idea at the moment. But bees will look after themselves. They don't need us to help them. They just need some space, basically, somewhere that isn't polluted, destroyed, plowed, sprayed with pesticides or whatever, and then they'll be quite happy. You also mentioned before a disease that has been imported, actually, that has been a hot topic in the news. But what does it mean exactly, for example, for the bumblebee? Yeah, so there are actually more than one disease that have come from honeybees and are now infecting bumblebees. The, the most famous parasite is the varroa mite, which came from Asia and has jumped onto the European honeybee when we took them to Asia and then we brought them back again with the mites on them. And now basically these varroa mites are everywhere in the world and they're a real pain because they transmit viruses from bee to bee. Thankfully, the, the varroa mite doesn't affect bumblebees. But the viruses it transmits, things like deformed wing virus, will happily infect bumblebees and has a more or less the same effect on the bumblebees that it has on the honeybees, which is that if it's a severe infection, the bee develops with wings that don't work, basically. They're crunched up and the bees had it. It's useless, poor thing. 
But actually, there are other diseases which are less well known, things like uh, Nasima Sarani, which is a kind of Asian bee diarrhea, for want of a better description, which again, we've accidentally spread out of Asia. And so far as we know, was primarily a honeybee disease. But a study a few years ago in the UK found that 25% of wild worker bumblebees that they sampled were infected with this Asian honeybee disease in the UK. And in lab studies, it often kills them. The problem with diseases is always that if you take them outside of their native range and they encounter hosts that they're not co-adapted with, they often are much more harmful, you know, because the host doesn't have resistance. The disease, it, diseases, it's not in a disease's interest to kill its host generally, but if it encounters a new host, then, then the kind of balance between the disease and its host hasn't settled and they're often much more damaging to the host. That's basically the problem bumblebees are facing. And on top of everything else, that's not what they need, really. Yeah, so the disease more or less gets free play. Yeah, and sadly, I mean, I don't want to blame honeybees here particularly. I love honeybees. I eat honey and all the rest of it. Um, I know they're important as pollinators and fascinating creatures. But it is a simple truth that if you have too many honeybees, that it has two impacts on wild pollinators. One is that there's competition for food. Uh, and the other is that there is a net flow generally of disease from the hives out into the wild pollinator community, not just to bumblebees, but to all sorts of other wild pollinating insects, not even just bees. Things like deformed wing virus has been found in hoverflies and wasps. So there are issues with honeybee management that uh, ought to be more widely known. And it's I find it really frustrating that there are often save the bee campaigns, which are focused in, entirely on keeping more honeybees, which, you know, to me, completely misses the point about biodiversity. It might be a bit short-sighted of me, but do you want then actually to reduce the population of honeybees, or is that not a solution? I think there are places where there are too many and the population should be reduced. London is, is a good example where there's sort of fad for beekeeping in the last 20 years really took off and lots of people took up beekeeping, bought hives, put them in their tiny gardens without providing any flowers, sometimes on a balcony or a roof terrace. And there just aren't enough flowers. The honeybee density in London is about 10 times the UK average, which is just crazy. And it means this, you know, the hives don't do very well because they can't get enough food. And also that, you know, any, any efforts other people might make to grow flowers for bumblebees, for example, are, are thwarted because the starving honeybees descend on those flowers and take all the nectar straight away. It's, I think it's about sort of common sense and just recognizing that we need to find a kind of balance between honeybees and, and wild insects. And there are certain places, and perhaps another example would be, you know, if you have a nature reserve, which is full of rare native bees, you shouldn't put honeybee hives there. That just seems like a crazy idea to me. But unfortunately, it often happens. Um, nature reserves obviously have, tend to have lots of flowers. And beekeepers think, well, great, that's the perfect place to put all my hives. They'll make lots of lovely honey. And they're probably correct, but there'll be a cost to all that honey produced, sadly. Because there are a lot of different types of bees that they're not thinking about. So you talk about the diseases. Is there something we can do to stop the diseases or, or reduce them? Uh, the basic problem of once you've brought a disease and it's escaped into the wild in a new region of the world, there is no way of eradicating it. Uh, so the only thing really, it was two things one can suggest. One is 
let's not make that mistake again. Um, you know, we should have we should be much more careful about moving bees around the world, and you know, try to prevent more diseases spreading. Um, because I'm sure there are, but actually, we we are only scratching the surface of insect diseases. We don't really understand much about the diversity of diseases that affect wild insects. This, honeybees have been studied fairly well, but wild pollinators we know almost nothing about what diseases naturally occur in their populations and, and and what the geographic ranges of those diseases are or anything else so anyway we should just stop flying bees around the world without very careful quarantine at least uh, and i suppose the other thing of course comes back to, to what i said about honeybees that where diseases are being spread from hives then being careful where you put hives and doing your best to, to keep your honeybees as healthy as possible would also help. So you talk about the bumblebees, and we have talked about a little bit about the disease and the trouble, but in general, like the cycle of a, a bumblebee, because for a honeybee, we imagine either like the boxes where they grow them in or a natural hive. But for a bumblebee, that's different, I guess. How would you describe that? Yeah, so I mean, a, a bumblebee nest is normally found most commonly underground in a, a burrow or a cavity created by something else. They don't dig. The queen bumblebee comes out of hibernation in early spring and she flies around looking for somewhere to nest. And you, you often see these big fat bees backwards and forwards, low to the ground, looking for holes. And if they see a hole, they'll walk into it. And sometimes they'll be down there for quite a while. And, and they're, what they're hoping to find is a is a cozy cavity with an old nest in it from a some kind of rodent that they can use as insulation for their own nest. And if they find that, then they'll fly off and get pollen and they'll make a little pollen ball in the center of the nest and they'll lay eggs and they incubate their, their eggs just like a, a bird. They sit on the eggs and they, they shiver those flight muscles to generate heat again to keep the, the brood warm in spring. So, and that, this is all completely different to the honeybee because in honeybees, the queen is never on her own. She always has an army of workers with her, whereas the, the, the bumblebee queen has to do all everything to start with in the nest. But if all goes well, those first offspring that she uh, lays become workers after about a month. And they then take over the foraging and the little nest grows underground. And it may get to have a to be maybe the size of a, a football in a really big bumblebee nest uh, by midsummer, and then it's it stops producing workers and it switches to producing new queens and males that fly out from the nest. They mate. That's the job of the males is just to find a young queen and mate if they possibly can. It's kind of sad because there are, there are for some strange reason there are way more males are born than young. Queens and the young queens only mate with one male, which again is very different to honeybee queens, which um, often mate with 20 males all in one, one, well, in very quick succession in a nuptial flight. In bumblebees, most species just mate with one male, and then the queens go into hibernation, and, and the majority of the males die without even having ever got to, to, to mate, which is kind of tragic because that's their job. But anyway, and that's the cycle done for the year. The old nest dies off completely the young queen that's mated just burrows into the soil and sits there till the following spring. There are some that nest on in grassy tussocks on the soil surface and there are some, there's one, the tree bumblebee that very often goes in, in bird boxes and often causes some consternation to homeowners when they were hoping that a, a blue tit or a great tit would move in and they found they've got a bee nest on the side of their house 
and you have to explain to them that the bees are you know kind of fascinating they're not going to attack them it's all good but uh, some people don't like it very much but uh, uh yeah that, that's basically it. there are some weird bumblebees like tropical ones that that don't hibernate and so on but but most all the european ones have that annual cycle so they only have a lifespan of one year and just the queens that and the workers are more like a honeybee they they live maybe a month if they're lucky but the queen if all goes well is born in july and probably would die about a year later in in honeybees queens can live for several years uh, i don't know what the record is do you have any idea olga so honeybee up to five years they can survive Usually, some beekeepers, they change them every two years or three years um, to be more productive in a hive. But if it stays in a family, up to five years, she can survive. But the thing is, it's funny that she comes from the same egg as the normal worker bee. It's only the way uh, they are fitted, not with pollen and honey, but the, the queen bee milk. So that's uh, how it's changing uh, the, the whole process. And the life length is so much longer than for worker bee. That is only 35 days maximum. I could throw in an irrelevant fact here that I read the other day. The longest known insect longevity lifespan is termite queens that can live for at least 50 years and nobody knows it may be much longer it's just nobody's actually kept one for longer than that to find out when it dies um, amazing though i mean you know it's a it's an awful long time to be sitting there churning out eggs they produce trillions of eggs in their lifetime as well because they're, they're just laying every day for 50 years that's amazing the insect world is just full of some really, really weird creatures. And most of this we don't know, you know, most insects nobody's really studied at all. Even, even the bees, you know, we have 270 species in the UK. Most of those we know next to nothing about, even in, you know, one of the most sort of um, studied parts of the world, let alone, you know, bees in tropical regions where well, there are no doubt lots of species we haven't even discovered, but the ones we have discovered are mostly just a name and we know almost zero about them. Which is one of the amazing things about studying insects, whatever group you're interested in, it's just there's so much waiting to be discovered, you know, so many amazing things. Who knows? The actual longest lived insect might be something completely different that we've never, you know, no one's studied yet. Yeah, I think that's a, a very good point because a lot of people who are not into science think we know a lot or almost everything about insects because there's like mundane insects or in general but like you said there's so much we still don't know that's really cool it's, it is i mean and i mean just to give you another example there's a whole family of flies called dance flies that are very common in europe for most species of dance fly nobody has ever seen the larva the, the maggot the grub we have no idea where they live what they do what they look like has never been discovered at all and yet the adults you can find them hovering above ponds and streams all over the place it's just an example of you know of every even everyday insects that, that are very easily found we often know almost nothing about them once i was asked by a girl that was attending my workshop uh, whether bees can cry and what makes bees to cry and at first my impression was like they can't cry like they are not human beings uh, but there was like you know some this question really stayed in my mind and i started to search uh, in, a, in google like can bees cry 
So uh, I was keeping this question, in fact, for someone with knowledge about bees and bumblebees to ask if they can cry. So my question is from my lovely participant. Um, is it uh, like bees can cry? Okay, so they can't physically cry in the sense that they don't have tear ducts and they can't produce liquid from their eyes. But I agree that they respond to injury as if they're feeling pain. They get excited when they find particularly rewarding flowers or whatever. And, uh, they get angry, or at least they appear to behave as if they're angry if you, if you really upset the nest. And I've been chased by an angry bee, and it certainly seemed like it was uh, something emotional was happening to it. It wouldn't give up. And so if they can feel, although, I mean... <laughs> Obviously, they don't think and feel like humans do, and it's silly to anthropomorphize too much. But equally, we shouldn't think that just because they're insects, they don't have thoughts, feelings, emotions of some sort. And, that you know, basically, if we want to kill them, we should be entitled to because they, they don't count, uh, which I think a lot of people think. I mean, I guess it sounds a bit silly, but, you know, how we have human rights for people, you know, basic rights that everyone should be entitled to. I, I think we should apply the same to all life on the planet. You know, every, everything has the right to be here, at least as much right as we do, regardless of what it does or what it feels, because we'll never know, how can we ever know really what a bumblebee feels? But they definitely feel something, I think. So <laughs> to come back to your question, and, uh, you know, I think if you want them, the more time you spend watching them, the, the more you realize that they, they also they have individual personalities. There's a lovely documentary about solitary bees that was made in lockdown by a, a wildlife cameraman in, a, in Bristol, British city. And it's called My Garden of a Thousand Bees. And he spent the whole spring filming every day these the comings and goings of some solitary bees in a, in a, in nesting in a, a, a bee hotel. And he kind of got to know them and the bees got to know him and, and they got used to him and, and eventually just would ignore him so he could film them really close up. And he could identify the different bees from the wing wear and the shape and size, little bits of damage they had. And so and he, they, they were like real characters. You know, they, they, they definitely had personalities, well, at least according to this, this documentary. Um, you know, some, some of them were more aggressive to other bees near their hole. Others were much less some were much harder working than others and so on it's really it's worth a watch i thought it was really fascinating i mean you know as a scientist you have to try and kind of keep some detachment and be impartial but at the same time it'd be inhuman not to have empathy for these little creatures i think yes the more you observe them you more empathy i think you work mostly on bumblebees dave but you mentioned termites do you also work on termites and other insects I have worked on all sorts of things, um, but at the moment, uh, it's mostly bees, nearly all bees. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, the whole insect world is fascinating. And my first love were butterflies. I did my PhD on butterflies, but uh, eventually realized that they're, they're quite simple creatures compared to bees. Bees are much brighter, much cleverer and, and more complicated. So your main research was on which flowers do we need to help bees and bumblebees? Do you have some interesting results on that? It's hard to come up with sort of a simple summary. There's certainly a couple of points I could make. One is that I think there's a bit of a danger that we roll out kind of generic seed mixes, particularly in farmland. There are one or two seed mixes that are very popular in the UK that farmers get funding to sow under agri-environment schemes. 
but they're all you know if every farmer in the country or uses the same seed mix that's actually not great for biodiversity and i think we need more diversity and ideally more plants that are locally appropriate you know to try and encourage regeneration of plant species that already occur in that region rather than rolling out kind of generic seed mixes all over the place and we've done some work on garden plants and i mean certainly there are lots of non-natives that are very attractive to bumblebees but there does seem to be a general pattern that on average native plants in gardens perform better for wildlife with some exceptions a simple thing we can do to encourage nature in cities is to persuade people to grow more native plants uh, and to try and be more tolerant of weeds you know there's sort of plants that we're taught are bad we have to persecute them and, and some weeds are invasive plants from abroad and that's one thing but many of the plants that we persecute are native species and they're very valuable to insects and uh, it's quite important to try and challenge the, the view that these plants have to be destroyed everywhere and generally being a bit more tolerant of untidiness uh, longer grass you know some plants popping up in the cracks in the pavement human beings are strangely uh, obsessed with tidying things up and nature would benefit enormously if we could just relax a little bit yeah in belgium we have now no mowing may something like that and we just yeah. try to keep yeah, is the same in poland or Yes, it's the same, like uh, to keep the grass longer. It depends how it works, as always. For example, I have creeping uh, thistle in my garden. It's also like field thistle called. Uh, and usually I hear that my garden is weedy. So I always said, like, I always thought I'm a bad gardener. Uh, now I said that I'm a bee-friendly gardener. Uh, so I keep all the weeds uh, that are possible in the garden. Um, and also I made a um, kind of mistake, like I bought clover and I wanted to plant it next to the, to the beehives. And there were some left. Uh, so I thought I would just go through the garden and throw uh, the seeds. Uh, so I do not have grass in my garden anymore because clover is all over the place. Uh, just in case if my mom asks how it happened, I always say I have no idea. It just came from other places. Uh, and, you know, that's that's how I um, simply uh, get rid of the grass from my garden. That's brilliant. You're lucky that it was so easy. It was very easy. Like helping the bees is in fact people relax. Like you don't have to do anything. Like just, yeah. just go for a walk, stay at home, watch TV, and yeah. the wildlife will manage. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Just let the gardens to, to grow and it will be fantastic. So just in case I'm the uh, I'm the weedy gardener. Yeah, and also like Dave said, weeds are a human construct. Because it's just the plants that they didn't plant ourselves. So we think that's a weed, but that's just the plant growing naturally. Oh, what yeah. is a weed? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, a, as you say, you know, it's, it's a plant we've arbitrarily decided is in the wrong place. Um, and uh, you, you, it sounds a bit silly, really, but you, you know, you can get rid of all the weeds in your, in your garden just by reimagining them as wildflowers and job done. But it actually also brings us back to the pesticides, because a lot of people use pesticides to get rid of the weeds. They do, yeah. It's very frustrating. And a lot of local councils spray streets, pavements, parks with weed killer, which, you know, is, is just seems to me completely unnecessary. 
it was actually fascinating. There was a recent uh, little campaign in London where somebody took it upon themselves to take a piece of chalk and wherever they could find a little plant growing on a crack in the pavement, they'd write the, the name of the plant, uh, label it. And it was amazing how many species of plant they managed to find, you know, in, in, a, in an urban part of London, growing in these tiny little urban, you know, little tiny pockets of soil in cracks in the pavement and, and so on. And it was a really interesting way of highlighting that there was this kind of biodiversity literally under our feet that people never stopped to appreciate. Yeah, that's a really cool idea. It will be impossible actually to do, or uh, but it would be really cool to have something like that, like with all the different bumblebees and bees you see flying around. You can't label them, of course, but it would be cool to know all the different species. Yeah, indeed. You said there were a lot of different species, and Olga told us as well, but do you have an idea on how many species there are? So there are about 270 species of bee in the UK. I think the figure is about 600 for Europe, but that might be wrong. I, that's dredging the back of my brain somewhere. And the record for a garden that I know of is about 90 species in a single garden. That was someone who spent a lot of years looking. But, uh, it's you know, it's, most people are amazed that you, there could possibly be so many different species of bee, you know, in, in someone's backyard. But there must have been an immense garden as well. No, no. I mean, actually, the, it's worth mentioning at this point that, so, so far as I'm aware, the global biodiversity hotspot in terms of numbers of species per area is a little garden in Leicester in England, where a slightly crazy, obsessive lady spent 35 years identifying everything, you know, birds, plants, worms, insects, whatever she could, getting in experts to help. Uh, and her species list after 35 years was 2,673 different species of animal and plant. And this is an eighth of an acre, so about a twentieth of a hectare, her garden. Two and a half thousand species in a twentieth of a hectare. That, as I say, in terms of species per unit area, that's better than any rainforest that I'm aware of. And just, I mean, it's just the effort she put in, of course. There's nothing really special about her little garden. It just goes to show, you know, if, if you bother to look, there's an amazing amount of stuff right under our noses. You can actually manage a lot even with a small area because people often say, I only have a small garden, I can't do anything. But there's a lot you can do on a small area. Yeah, absolutely. Insects, you know, can thrive in, in really small habitat patches. And what do you recommend for people when they have a small garden? Is it just planting different types of flowers or would you recommend other stuff as well? Well, it's, uh, flowers are the key kind of starting point, but uh, not for bees, obviously, but for insects, generally a little pond is fantastic. It's amazing how many aquatic insects will turn up on their own. Bee hotels, I think, are fun, great for kind of engagement. You know, if you've got children, really fun for them to watch the bees coming and going from a hotel. Whether it really makes any difference to the bee population is unclear, but it's great for getting people connected with nature. But yeah, the main thing is to grow some plants, grow some, I mean, ideally some native wildflowers in, you know, even if you've just got a few, it's better than nothing. And it's amazing that insects will find them, you know, wherever you are. In Poland, we have like 470 different species of bees. Uh, so a little bit more than in the UK. It's really like surprising that uh, they are all around us. And last year we organized the trip uh, in my city from bee perspective. So we just walk through the paths we are crossing every day. 
And I just started to show uh, different plants and where bees are. And suddenly the citizens of my city, they realized that when they are waiting for the bus at the bus stop, just next to them, uh, there's a plant which is full of different kinds of bees. So I hope now they look at our city a little bit different when they are walking. I hope like more people will get aware that uh, bees just are around them. When you explain that there are 470 different species of bees, it's almost the same amount of, as birds uh, in Poland. But at the same time, if we can name different kinds of birds, we are not able to like name apart from honeybee, sometimes bumblebee, but it's like problematic whether it's a bee or not. And usually people consider bumblebees are male version of honeybee. So just in case, Dave, <laughs> when you said it's a bumblebee queen, some people might get surprised. I sometimes see like the photo like uh, on Instagram and it's uh, honeybee and bumblebee next to each other. And it's written like honeybee with it's like a partner. And I think, no, that's two ladies <laughs> in fact. <laughs> Uh, maybe a stupid question, but you said about the pond, bumblebees don't really need them. Do bumblebees drink or do they get all the water from the nectar or do they actually need water supply? Honeybees drink in hot weather and, and use the water to cool down the nest. But bumblebees, I don't think I've ever seen naturally drinking water. They just must presumably survive on what they get from flowers. That is interesting, actually. Because when you said it, I was thinking I never have seen a bumblebee drinking. So it's actually true. It doesn't really drink water. It's just enough when it gets from the flowers. Must be. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an interesting difference though, isn't it? And uh, bumblebees do also try and cool their nest. They'll fan the nest if it gets really hot, but they don't seem to require water to do that. Uh, perhaps they're not using evaporation as a cooling mechanism in the way that honeybees do. And if people at home want to learn more about bumblebees or honeybees, what would you recommend? Maybe some of your books, I guess. Well, if they want to know about bumblebees, then then my first book, and I, know I, I hate plugging my books, but uh, Sting in the Tail is is a kind of gentle introduction to the world of, of the bumblebee that's kind of accessible to anyone. So I guess I'd go with that. Okay. But to be safe, you didn't plug it in. I really asked you about it. So True. By the way, 1,500 is the figure I should have come out with, the number of bees in Europe. I've just been dredging through my memory banks. I said 600, but I'm pretty sure it's 1,500 or thereabouts. 1,500 species. It's a lot of bees. That's a lot of bees. And so you have been in academia for a long time. What do you like about academia so much? I, I guess it's, I mean, it's been, it's a real privilege, really, to be paid to pursue your curiosity you know I mean I, I've loved insects all my life and uh, to basically be able to make a living out of your childhood hobby is pretty cool I don't know what else I'd have done but that was actually my next question you wanted to be a scientist when you were a child I don't think I knew there was such a thing as a scientist that studied insects when I was young I'm not quite sure when it occurred to me that I could actually uh, make a living out of that probably after I'd done a degree I think when it finally dawned on me that it might be possible to stay in universities but uh, I remember having a, a chat with a careers advisor when I was probably about 15, and he, he, he strongly recommended I should be a vet. As it was the only thing with animals. I, I wanted to do something with animals, and that was all he could come up with. But uh, I'm glad I discovered there's, there's, there are other possibilities. There's no bumblebee vet, I guess. <laughs> I've not met him. <laughs> yeah, okay. 
so you said you wouldn't know what you would be if you weren't a scientist, but can you make any guess? Like if you weren't a scientist, do you have anything else you wanted to be or really nothing else? No, I, I honestly, I'd be lost if I, I couldn't, I haven't got a clue what else I could have done um, or would have wanted to do. I don't know, you know, worked in a zoo or something, but it wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been anywhere near as much fun. But it should have included animals. Yeah, I mean, I, I just always loved nature and wanted to do something. Maybe being a farmer. Dave said uh, he shouldn't recommend his own books, uh, so I can do it. Uh, I read them all, and I'm your Dave. I'm your big fan. Um, I'm not nice. I'm honest. Yeah, because I actually know that she has all your books with her right now. They are just here, but in Polish, which uh, I always say that Polish is one of the mm, the most difficult languages. So the title of your book in Poland is Żądła Żądzą. Uh, I suppose it's one of the most difficult titles you have ever had of your book. But I love your sense of humor. And when I read your story about your fishes, I thought I will not read anything better than that. And uh, <laughs> later on, I read uh, that you tried to chew a bumblebee. And uh, it was absolutely fantastic. We always laugh in Poland that the real beekeeper is not eating honey. The real beekeeper is chewing bees. Uh, so when I read your story about the bumblebee in uh, in your mouth, uh, maybe you will tell Jeroen uh, the whole story. It was hilarious. And when I'm reading your book, it's not like reading some, you know, science book. You, you put there a lot of knowledge about uh, bumblebees, but at the same time, they are so funny. So when I'm reading your book, I'm just laughing. And everyone else, like at my home, they are thinking what I'm reading. And they are just about bumblebees uh, or about garden and everything. Uh, so um, that is, I love the stories you are like putting through your books and also the recipes you are going, uh, you are doing for muffins and other stuff. I will try to do them. I'm awful at cooking, but I <laughs> promise myself I will give a try. <laughs> Some of them are really easy. Blackberry jam recipes. You can't go wrong. You have no idea, which means easy for me. Like, <laughs> I blew a microwave a few times, which already should make an idea how bad I am. That's impressive. Well, I am actually curious now about the story where you ate a bumblebee. Oh, yeah, okay. So I'll keep it reasonably short, but basically entomologists often use a pooter. Um, I don't know if you've ever come across one, but it's a, it's a little little jar and there's a bung in the top and two tubes through the bung and each leading to a flexible plastic tube. And you put one in your mouth and you point the other one at a small insect. It's a way of picking up things like ants and tiny insects without crushing them or squashing them. So you point the one tube at the insect and you put the other one, suck, and the insect flies up into the jar. But a really critical thing is you have to put a bit of netting on the tube that goes into your mouth on the end of it or else an obvious thing can happen. Uh, anyway, I was trying to move bumblebees from one nest to another nest. And so I decided to make a giant pooter. So I got a big jam jar and the big tubes that bumblebees would fit through and assembled it all. And, 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 it, and it worked beautifully, but I forgot the crucial part, which was the netting. And, and it, it worked for a few, but then of course, one eventually shot up the tube straight into my mouth. It's the only time I've had a live and very angry bumblebee in my mouth. And uh, obviously it was 
painful and I ended up with my bottom lip swelled up ridiculously and I had to explain to my PhD students what had happened and uh, all a bit embarrassing but uh, anyway um, yeah. it is a great story though it is and it's one of like many others uh, in the book so uh, that's that's another like uh, recommendation I'm glad you enjoyed it anyway Yes, and I discovered for the Harry Potter fans that Dumbledore is like an uh, old word for bumblebee. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's cool. Your books are uh, well available and we recommend them to our listeners. Thank you. Dave, do you have maybe a take home message for our listeners? Just be positive and do something to help. You know, it's, it is easy to get depressed, but the nice thing about insects is they do live all around us. You know, they live in, in parks and gardens and and just simple things we could do, you know, a few flowers. And it doesn't sound like much, but if everybody did it, you know, it would really add up. And, you know, so don't be despondent, uh, do what you can. And uh, maybe we can save the day. That sounds great. So this was the eighth episode of Apple Finch Pudding. I want to thank Dave Golson for the information and Olga Vodanska for the questions. Let's meet again for the next episode of Apple Finch Pudding. <laughs>